This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Okay, so welcome everybody to our second talk uh, about uh, what livelihood given by Sajaraja. Um, so I'm going to make a brief introduction. I'll say, I think, a little bit by way of introduction about Sajaraja, but then I'll obviously let them just get on the talk. Um, so, yeah, there's a couple of things I'd like to say about Sajaraja that I think... Um, I suppose, express something of my appreciation and something of what I know about Sadhguru a little bit. Um, so I wanted to mention a couple of things. Um, so if you spend any sort of time with Sadhguru, um, you get to know him a little bit. One of the first things you'll realize is he's got a really big capacity to spend time with people. Um, and mostly when you talk with him, mostly he's been... If it's at weekend, obviously at work, he's spending time with people. And if you look at the various roles that he has in his life as well, obviously he's welfare officer, he's a study leader, he's a preceptor, he's a KM, he's a friend to a lot of people, he's obviously a father as well. Mm-hmm. I've noticed in all those roles, he tends to take on the same sort of position, which is essentially supporting supporting, listening, um, helping, advising. So it's like his job as welfare officer, it's like it's happening in all the other relationships in his life as well. He did say once that um, it's a vocation for him, uh, doing welfare. And um, when you look at all different relationships in his life, you realize that's true, because he seems to operate in the same sort of way, no matter where you are, which is essentially uh, helping people. And the thing that stood out to me about Sadaraj because of that is that he cares a lot about people. Um, I think he's a man who's got a big heart, um, big capacity for empathy. Um, I don't think there's any way that you could do his job if you didn't have that capacity, if you couldn't listen to people as much as he listens to people, um, and give as much as he gives. So that was the first thing I wanted to mention. Um, second thing is... Um, also spending any sort of time with Sadaraji, you notice that uh, he likes to tell stories. I think he's a very good storyteller. I really like to listen to him tell stories. Um, and they tend to be stories about what's happened in his life, um, things he's noticed, uh, things about people that he's been meeting. Um, but anyway, lots and lots of stories. Um, generally, very entertaining stories. Um, but one thing I've noticed with all the storytelling is um, essentially what seems to shine through is he's got a big, um, how could you put it now, um, there's a big passion, I would say, for learning and um, learning and uh, understanding. He really likes to learn and understand. By his own admission, he's not an academic. It's not that sort of learning and understanding at all. It's, it's quite different. It's to do with, mainly it's to do with people, it's obviously do, to do with the Dharma. It's to do with life, really. He's not really interested in the academic stuff. He's really interested in the, the nuts and bolts of how things work, 
how people get on, how the Dharma works in pra very pragmatic and practical terms. And I think because of that, Sadaraja is a man who's got a hell of a lot to offer. Um, you see that in his role here, and also you see it, as I mentioned, in all the different roles that he takes on um, in the different areas of his life. He's got a lot to offer. And I suppose if you... Uh, if you're going to give six talks on right, right livelihood, you must feel as though you've got quite a lot to offer as well. Um, so I think I'll leave it at that in terms of uh, talking about Sadaraja. So the talk today is called Dealing with Change. So well, I think that's the longest introduction I've ever had in this country to a talk. But in terms of India, it would be an indecently short introduction. In India, you want at least half an hour, really, before a talk. So, good morning and welcome to talk number two in the series on Right Livelihood this year. So this is called Dealing with Change. So there's a bit of blurb, which you might have read in the Windhorse Evolution newsletter, so I'll read it out. The work world is changing fast. Budget cuts, changing technology and emerging new industries. How do we avoid getting marginalised or anxious? The answer is learning new skills, keeping the creative edge, being realistic and practical, upskilling and working in creative ways. Okay, so that's it. I'm going to sit down now. I think you want a little bit more, don't you? Okay, so let's have a look. By the way, there's no need to take any notes in this talk, because there's a whole set of notes I've done, like I did last time. So Samudra Ghosh's got a set, and somebody over there's got a set. So when you leave, you can take the notes with you. But I'm not going to give you give them to you before giving the talk, no. Okay, so in the last talk, I had some rather embarrassing photographs of me. I was talking about my work life in the past. Some rather embarrassing photographs. So I've got even more embarrassing photographs this week. In fact, I've got the first photograph of me that was ever done. So it was actually taken in 1959. So that's me there, a little rag with my mummy and daddy. There I am, look. There I am. Yeah, 1959. That's me, my mum and dad, and my brother. They were out in a forest. We used to live in a forest, in a little cottage. And uh, I've got an even more embarrassing one. Uh, this is me, aged nine. Hey, look, look at that! Look at that haircut! Look at that haircut! So that was me, aged nine. So yes, I was born in Wales, and uh, in 1959, North Wales. And my father was a forester. And he was in charge of hundreds and hundreds of acres of forest. We lived in the middle of the forest. And in 1966, just as England were winning the World Cup in football, for the one around the time, uh, we actually moved north to the Lake District, the English Lake District, to Windermere. My dad got a better job up there working for Lord Cavendish on his vast estate in, uh, in the Lake District. And, uh, well, what happened was... After two years in that job, we got to 1968, 
you know, 1968, the summer of love, you know, the Vietnam War, Bob Dylan, the Beatles, all that kind of thing was going on. And, uh, well, while all that exciting cultural stuff was happening, um, my family had a life-changing experience. Uh, so I've got to tell you a little bit about it, actually. Um, so Dad was in the job for two years, and we'd had a very, very long, hot, dry spell, a very long, hot summer. And it had gone on for months and months and months. A bit like it's been here recently, it's been dry, and there was a lot of concern about forest fires. What I can remember on Saturday afternoon very, very clearly, I was playing pitch and putt with my brother on the lawn. We were playing golf like this one uh, afternoon. So I was this age, yeah? I was nine at the time. And all these fire engines turned up. There was fire engines running past, and we noticed in my father's timber yard <coughs> there was lorries, there was trucks, there was Land Rovers, there was men getting into all these Land Rovers, unloading in dozens and dozens of fire beaters. And then we noticed our father running around in a really, really stressful way, shouting at everyone, and then shouting at us, come on, come with us. So we had to get into this Land Rover, and we, we drove off into the forest, about two miles into the forest. And I will never forget what we saw. What we saw was like a kind of scene from hell. It was a kind of inferno. It was like that. That's what it was like. We were hit by a wall of flame. Yeah? It was that kind of stuff. It was really, really, really serious. My father had, um, well, he'd encountered many, many forest fires in his time, but nothing like the one of 1968. And, uh, well, what happened was, uh, we arrived there, and we were just, we totally encountered chaos everywhere. There were people running around, there was smoke, there was shouting. It was a scene from hell. One of the things I particularly remember were herds of deer running out of the forest. Normally you never get to see deer. Red deer, roe deer, fallow deer, you never get to see them because they're almost invisible. But they were running out of the forest. We saw badgers and foxes and rabbits and the smell and the smoke and choking uh, it was crazy and of course there was absolutely nothing that we could do it was very very frightening and we stood at a distance because the heat was so intense from this forest so there was nothing we could do so we waited around and watched it kind of burn down the whole of the forest was burning down hundreds and hundreds of acres the fire engines were just pathetic you know, for just a little bit of shooting a bit more, it was, it was a complete waste of time. Um, and the next day, well, once where there had once been hundreds of acres of tall forest, there was nothing. There was just this black, smoking wasteland. Yeah, where forest had once existed, now there was nothing. Overnight, the landscape completely changed. And also, my family life changed completely forever because Dad had this job. And, what you know, he'd gone to manage a really big forest, and now that was replaced by a very small forest. And uh, it was quite a shock to all of us. And uh, in the end, he had to set up a sawmill uh, with enormous circular saws and timber because uh, we needed a new business, because he didn't have a job otherwise. And um, I can distinctly remember as a young kid 
bringing his lunch in the sawmill, um, walking through these massive saws going round, no guards on him, of course. It was a complete health and safety nightmare. I mean, Rogerio would have had kittens, you know. <laughs> he really would. But that's what Dad had to do. He had to start running the sawmill. But it changed our life um, overnight. And the reason I'm telling you about all this is as an example of overnight sudden change at work. Yeah? One day we had a big forest. The next day we had nothing. And um, it had a very, very big effect on me and on the family. And I couldn't really come to terms with it very easily at the time. Um, our life had changed. Our whole family life had completely changed. And um, it's also one of the factors in me becoming a Buddhist. I became a Buddhist when I was 14. Well, one of the difficulties I'd had with the church was I was being taught that God was two things. God was compassionate and God was in charge of the universe. And it seemed to me that bad things happened in the world like this. And um, I couldn't sort of square that. So I left the church and became, eventually became a Buddhist. So the reason I'm talking about this is I think it's very relevant to Windows evolution today. Hopefully, we'll never have an overnight massive fire at Udiana or in any of our evolution shops. We've got the right uh, safeguards in place, we hope, but let's hope we never have even a small fire at a place like this. If we did, if that did happen, things would be very, very challenging for all of us. Yeah, we might not recover. Yeah, it might be a bridge too far. We may not have a business after that. I don't know. I'm just trying to read Keitaraja's face. He probably knows about the insurance deals that we've got going down. Um, yeah, so that would be a massive overnight. So hopefully with sensible safeguards, that will never happen. But what about the smaller, less dramatic change that goes on in our working lives? Yeah, The kind that is unseen. We don't see it happening every day. But nonetheless, it's there and it affects us in all sorts of ways. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about, well, here's a little random selection. Okay, the sort of things. I'm talking about the rising cost of business overheads. Yeah? Shops not doing quite as well as they were the previous year. Yeah, the footfall is down in that particular city. Changing employment practices in the workplace. Yeah? So, a good example is the whole new parental leave leg legislation which has just come in. Then there's things like changing computer packages, you know, changing software, or even entire IT systems change. It's a kind of change, and we have to get used to that. New technology in the workplace. And then, of course, there's staff changes. Cherished friends and colleagues are constantly leaving the business, and new people are saying hello to new people almost every week within the business. It's a kind of change. Yeah? And there's our own personal career development. Perhaps you're not doing the same job as what you once were doing when you first came into the business. That might be a good thing. Maybe that's not a good thing for you. And of course, there's changing, the changing economy and purchasing patterns and business patterns within the world. Always changing, that can affect us very strongly. And there's ethos and cultural change going on. Windhorse Evolution is a very, very different business culturally from what it was 10 years ago. 
Uh, you might see that as a good thing, or not a good thing, or somewhere in between. There's change in strategy and management style. And of course, there's change in teams. This is a team-based flat-loving business, and teams change all the time. So almost every week we're doing a send-off to somebody, aren't we? And we're saying hello, and Dam City is inducting somebody new into the business, into our team. And of course, there's also skills. Uh, there's our changing skills and skills that are needed within employment. Um, we need to keep our skills up, otherwise we might become irrelevant and unemployable. So all this change can bring great anxiety, great anxiety. Sangharakshita has called this particular epoch that we're living in the age of anxiety. Yeah. So many, many people feel anxious today in Britain about their employment. The threat of unemployment. Yeah, the worry about health and the amount of absence that they've taken during, during the year. Of course, there's a whole area of job satisfaction. A lot of people aren't satisfied with their job. They don't really like going to work, but they've got to do it. They're not very happy with it. It brings anxiety. Then, of course, there's a the whole area of money anxiety. Yeah, that deserves a whole talk in itself, doesn't it? Money anxiety. Everybody seems to be worried about money at some level. So as Buddhists working in a Buddhist business, these anxieties can be present. Yeah, they're just like the rest of the world. We have to deal with these things. How do we work skillfully with them? And it seems to me that it's very easy to fall into two extremes, two extreme positions. One of them is a kind of paranoid anxiety. So this is where you just become paralysed by anxiety. And you think, well, it's hopeless. We're doomed, actually. We're doomed. We're, we're going to go under. It's, it's useless. And we get really, really gloomy and defeatist about the whole thing. That's one extreme. The other extreme is a kind of naive optimism. It's, ah, it'll be okay. It'll be all right. Kate Raja will sort it out. He's, he's really clever. You know, he, he's a good guy. He'll sort it out. It'll be, it'll be okay. A kind of naive optimism where we just hope for the best. I hope it will be okay. Um, so I think we need a middle way, a creative middle way, yeah, which is based on two things. It needs to be totally realistic about the world of work today um, because we will get feedback from that world if we don't get it exactly right if Bazabandu doesn't get it exactly right with his customers in Ireland he'll get feedback from them they won't, they won't actually buy from him as much as he would want secondly um, it needs to be informed by timeless and deep spiritual practices taught by the Buddha I'm going to say a bit more about this later. Uh, it's actually a great opportunity. So, what do I mean by dealing with change? So what Collins Dictionary says, to make or become different, to alter, replace with or exchange for another, to transform or convert. So that's what change means. So it's an ordinary everyday definition, yeah? But also, what about the Buddhist usage of the term change? Uh, it's the same as this, of course. And also, there's the teaching of the three Lakshanas. Yeah, conditioned existence, as we've got here, here of life, is endless. It's an endless round in our lives. And the Sangsara. 
of unsatisfactoriness. This is the first kind of mark of this existence, dukkha. Secondly, impermanence, anicca. And thirdly, insubstantiality. So we're concerned here with the second one, impermanence. And this is the teaching that everything is in constant change. And when I say everything, I mean absolutely everything. And that includes us, and that includes our team-based right livelihood. So here's a nice little quote from the essential Sangharachita about impermanence. Here we go. Broadly speaking, the Lakshana of our nature points to the fact that the whole universe, from top to bottom, in all its grandeur, in all its immensity, is just one vast congeries of processes of different types taking place at all levels and all interrelated. Nothing ever stands still, not even for an instant, not even for a fraction of a second. We do not see this, though. When we look up, we see the everlasting hills, and and in the night sky we descry the same stars that our ancestors mapped out at the dawn of history. Houses stand for generation to generation, the old oak furniture within seems to become more solid with the passing of the years. Even our own bodies seem much the same from one year to the next. It is only when the increments of change add up to something notable, when the great house is burned down, and when we realise that the star we are looking at is already extinct, or when we ourselves take to our deathbed, that we realise the truth of impermanence or non-eternity. That all conditioned things, from the tiniest particles to the most massive stars, begin, continue and then cease. So this is Bante's description of impermanence. The teaching that everything is constantly in change. That is the reality of the world. We may not, we may understand that intellectually, but we may not want to understand that and see that with our hearts. It's quite difficult to do sometimes to really accept that everything is constantly changing. Yeah, we don't want to see it. So not only do we see everlasting hills and everlasting houses, we might see everlasting warehouses. We might see everlasting evolution shops, everlasting sales vans. Yeah, and all this is maintained by an everlasting staff, yeah, with everlasting bodies. That's how we look at it, yeah. So talking of bodies, I've got some interesting pictures here. I was looking on the internet and I came across some um, men's bodies and how men's bodies change throughout their lives. So, it's so there's a complete disc and then it's born, then it comes in the thing, yeah, and then it comes in you, and then... I'm a middle-aged man, okay. starting to get a bit more elderly, getting to all the time, and then I feel a really old man, and then eventually. So it's really, really interesting, isn't it? The cycle of life. That's what happens. That is what is happening to many bodies all the time. Okay. Um, but it's not like the ladies are kind of um, escaping that as well. The ladies go through that as well. I wasn't able to find a similar one for them. Um, but I did find this painting by Gustav Klimt, the German 
expression is called the three ages of woman. So there are three kinds of women on there, and that's, that's kind of what we don't like to look at what it's That is what happens. Yeah, our bodies change all the time. So up in um, the HR department, I've got lots of pictures of people. And we've got lots of pictures up there as we all do. And one of the first things you notice is how dated a lot of the pictures look. Because they've taken quite a few years ago, and we're all getting older. Yeah, I'll probably look back on this video in 20 years from now. God, look at that. Look how young I look. How young I look. So, yeah. So all this is quite difficult to actually deal with. I think it's quite hard for us to take this on. The profound truth that life is constantly changing. Everything is constantly changing. So we need to observe it and we need to deeply embrace it and come to terms with it. Some things change very slowly. You know, like mountains and continents. And even human bodies look like they change slowly. Some things seem to change very rapidly and constantly, like clothing fashions are always changing, the weather is constantly changing, and wind horse products are constantly changing. So as members of the workforce, we have to deal with this change. It's really, really important, not just for ourselves, but for the future of the business as well. And it's always been like this. The samsara life has always been like this. If you look at your sheets, you'll see the two modes of uh, conditionality. You see the wheel of life, the wheel, that's constantly changing. And also there's the kind of spiral, there's the, the creative path. So we've got the reactive mind and the creative mind. I'm not going to go into all this. It's one for your uh, discussion groups next week. Uh, but what I will say is this, this wheel of life is unconscious. It's reactive and it's unconscious. Yeah, our response, we don't really think about things, they just happen. Whereas the spiral is more creative and conscious. We think about it, we need to be more aware. So we need to recognise our responses to change. It's very important. So what might a big response to change at work look like? What might that look like? So here's a story, a little story from employment history. Uh, you've all heard about the Luddites. Well, I managed to track down a picture of the mythical Ned Ludd. There is Ned Ludd. Yeah, so it's about the early 1800s. Yeah. And they don't really know whether he really existed or whether he is a mythical figure. Somebody existed. They think he was a Leicestershire loser. And uh, what was happening uh, back in the 1800s was things were very, very grim with the economy. Much, much grimmer than it is now. Most people in the country weren't getting enough to eat. Food was so expensive because of the Napoleonic Wars. Things were very grim in the UK in those days. And in the weaving trade, yeah, there was big changes going on. Traditional weaving um, was being replaced by these big wide-framed looms that were coming in, which uh, mechanised looms, which could be operated by unskilled workers. So the weavers were getting really upset about this and very, very worried about their employment. <coughs> Incidentally, in those days, people worked about 14 hours a day, six days a week. 14 hours a day, six days a week. So that's just give you a bit of an idea. And there were no employment rights. You think it's a bit tough at Lindhorst these days. You need to look at your history books. 
So there was this social movement called the Luddites, and uh, they, in, they, they were centred in Nottingham, named after Nedla, and they reacted. What did they do? What was there? This is the Industrial Revolution, by the way. This is going on. So there's a lot of changes going on in society. What was their response to this change? Because they were really worried that they were going to be without work. If you were without work in those days, you were without food. You could starve. And people did. So what did they do? They committed industrial sabotage. They took these big hammers. They got these great big hammers, which they called Enoch. They called these hammers Enoch. That's where the word comes from. And they went in and smashed a lot of the, the uh, rooms. In some cases, they actually burned down textile mills. In one famous, infamous case, they actually killed the mill owner. That's how serious it got. By 1814, more soldiers in Britain were employed dealing with the Luddites than, than were dealing with Napoleon at that time. It was really, really serious business. Uh, in, interestingly, the Luddites were supported by Lord Byron, and him of Byron's Pool, Cambridge. This one naked in Byron's pool. It's quite good. I've done it myself. And um, he he supported them. And the climax came with the swing riots, where hundreds of the Luddites were transported to Australia, or hanged, or hanged. So Australia got a real big influx of rebellious characters. Rebellious characters. So um, you can make of that what you what you will. But the thing about the Luddites is, unfortunately, the term these days tends to get associated with people who've got a fear of technology and, uh, and change within a business. But actually, it's not really fair. The Luddites were actually uh, very vulnerable people who were very brave, who really stuck their necks out to try and sort of get some kind of fair play. There were no trade unions in those days. Don't forget. So they really did. You know, it was really quite serious stuff, what they did. And um, so that's the kind of thing that can happen sometimes when too much change comes in too quickly with an employment situation. And you can get a very reactive response. I don't think that can happen at Windhorse Evolution. I can't imagine people smashing things up, going into the office and turning all the kind of computers over and setting fire to the warehouse. And I can't kind of imagine that, really. I don't think you're that sort of people, really. I don't think it's really like that. Uh, so there won't be any machine-breaking here, I don't think. But I think if that kind of change anxiety did come in, it's probably likely to come in the form of unconstructive complaining. I think that's what I would observe most of all, unconstructive complaining and moaning and blaming. So if you find yourself doing this, I think you have to ask yourself why. Why am I doing that? Yeah? Could your response be more creative and constructive? Yeah? Constructive criticism is a good thing, but not unconstructive criticism. So mostly I think individuals have a choice to how they respond. They can respond creatively to change. Unfortunately, there are times when we can have too much change too soon. But what might that look like at Windows Evolution? So I've got a little scenario here where there's just too much change. So Kato Raja has decided to uh, step down as managing director after a year. He's going to be replaced by somebody else. Uh, we're going to restructure all the departments over the course of the weekend, and there'll be quite a lot of downsizing. 
all the vehicles will change to LPG by September 2011. Windhorse Evolution is diversifying into restaurants and properties by 2012. And also, oh yes, and we're going to open six new shops by the end of the year. Yeah, it'd be too much, wouldn't it? It'd be time to, time to get the hammers out, yeah? It'd be too much. Yeah? But what about not enough change? Sometimes there's things are stagnating, there isn't enough change going on and we're falling behind. What would that look like in Windhorse? Well, Windhorse uh, Evolution shops haven't changed their merchandising style or their decor since 1992. Van sales folk are still attempting to sell dated old lines like inflatable furniture and parrots. Visitor is forced to carry on with the present Concorde computer system for another 15 years. <laughs> That'd be a bridge too far, wouldn't it? So what would that result in? Business suicide, wouldn't it? It'd be business suicide, yeah? I mean, I can still remember when all the delivery notes were handwritten. Can anybody remember that? When they were all handwritten? So imagine if we were still doing that. Yeah, it'd be mad, wouldn't it? So where possible, we need to control the pace of change. It's important that we get it right in terms of the pace of change within the business. And that is largely the job of the directors. And I think they do do a fantastic job and uh, should be rejoiced in uh, as a group. So Buddhism as a path embraces change in two ways. It embraces it as the way things really are. And secondly, as a freedom to grow, to develop, to transform ourselves. So without impermanence uh, and nature, we couldn't grow and change towards enlightenment. It wouldn't be possible. We couldn't move from an unenlightened state to an enlightened state. So how can we be creative in the face of unending, constant change within the business, within a team-based right livelihood? That is the question. And once again, as in most questions on right livelihood, there's very little to be found in the scriptures of any real practical use. There are principles. There are principles there, and they're very helpful, but there's nothing practical in the scriptures. So here are my suggestions. Here are my suggestions for dealing with change. And I offer them to you to hopefully stimulate you, and I offer them, them humbly and with respect. They're there for you to criticize, to contemplate, to think about, to meditate upon, to discuss, to debate, improve upon, or reject. It's my little creative attempt in, in the face, in the context of a multi-million pound business and very little guidance upon it in the modern Buddhist world. So, seven suggestions. I've got seven suggestions. Based on my own experience and the testimony of the lives. Seven habits of highly creative right livelihood workers. Habit one, remember your shamatha practice. In the last talk, I talked quite a bit about shamatha, the passionate approaches to the spiritual life. And this is true in the relation to change. Yeah? Shama, um, shamatha meaning calm, groundedness, supportiveness. Uh, vipassana meaning insight. Yeah? And insight is dependent upon shamatha, that groundedness that we all need. 
And dealing with change can be quite demanding. It can be quite a shock. It can be an upset to the system. And you need quite a degree of calm in which to throw that particular pebble. Yeah, you throw a rock into a small puddle, there's a big splash. If you've got a big pond, you can throw a rock into it, it doesn't really bother. It needs to be like that with us. We need an element of calm in our in our inner lives. We also need it within the culture of the business, a degree of confidence and calm. So you need to be aware, you need to be mindful, you need to know what's actually happening, you need to observe and recollect and notice these changes. Yeah? A lot of people don't notice change within the business. They're actually living in the past. Five years ago, ten years ago, even twenty years ago. You need to be here in the now how things really actually are. So this is a quality of mindfulness and mindfulness of breathing practice is essential. You also need positive emotion as well. Yeah, all this change affects us emotionally and you need a quantum of positive emotion there, not negative emotion. And once again, metta bhavna is particularly important. When metta encounters suffering, it turns into karana, compassion. Yeah? And there are times when change is very painful and people suffer and we need to be able to respond compassionately to that suffering. When metta meets joy and success, it turns into mudita, yes, sympathetic joy. So we think, great, fantastic, this has gone really, really well, we're so happy. We're experiencing mudita, sympathetic joy. And then when metta meets mixed events, it turns into upeksha, equanimity. This is an incredibly important shamatha practice experience in mental state, equanimity. Probably of all the shamatha practices, probably equanimity is the one that really, really helps us in relation to dealing with change. My own life in welfare, my work in welfare, requires quite a bit of it. Sometimes I get the phone rings and it's news of a success. Um, somebody's doing really well, they've got a new job. Something's going very well in their job. They've had a health recovery or even an ordination invitation. Or it might be a major problem. Yeah? Health upset, crisis of some kind, a conflict in a shop or even a death. It happens. I never know what I'm going to deal with when I pick up that phone. I never know. So I have to have a breadth of calm in my life. And it's probably the same for you in different ways in your life. You never know what you're going to deal with. You don't know what the day will bring. You might fall off your bike, or hit by a car, or you might get a marriage proposal. <coughs> you just don't know what's going to happen, do you, in the course of the day. So we need a broad, developed base of shamatha. Yeah, meditation is the main method, but it's not the only one. Yeah, there are lots of other things like friendship, ethics, ritual, and retreats. Retreats are so important for developing shamatha. Get on retreat. So habit number two is take responsibility for yourself and others. So this is really an extension of habit one. If you take responsibility, you have to be aware of yourself and your values, your feelings, your capability, your skills. You have to know yourself quite well. To be 
to take responsibility for others, you've got to be able to observe and take them into account as well. What are they like? What's their capacity? What are their values? Yeah? And what we notice sometimes is that change, when change comes along, it can upset us. But somebody else, they're not bothered at all. Not bothered about it. We've replaced this van and we've bought a new one. Well, one van driver might be very, very upset about I really love that van. That was my van. But the other driver might not care at all. And that's what it's like with change, is it upsets some people and not others. And we need to take that into account. Yeah? It's interesting, not all the Nottingham weavers became Luddites. Some of them said, oh, well, um, I'll become a frame, a frame operative. That's what I'll do. So sometimes people come up to me and they express their upset around about change that's going on in the business. They get very upset about it. I listen to them. But often it hasn't occurred to them that other people might not see it in the same way. Other people are not bothered at all. They, they just assume that everyone sees it in the same way. But we don't. Um, change can be an opportunity or it can be the disaster, depending on your point of view. Yeah? Is the glass, is the glass, there it is. Is it half empty or is it half full? Yeah? Is it a broken egg or is it an omelette? <laughs> so for much of the smaller change within the business, yeah, we can see it quite positively. Much of the smaller change that's going on, we could see it as an opportunity for us to grow and change and embrace just what's happening. Yeah? So this means you need to have caution about complaining and blaming others. You need to be really, really cautious about that. Because when change happens, it can upset us. So you can ask yourself, if you're getting upset about a change, is this really reasonable? Is it reasonable that I'm upset about this? Do I really need to be so upset? So, this is habit two. Take responsibility for yourself and for others. Habit number three. Imagine the future and plan ahead to some extent. So, in the shops, the evolution shops, they often have these timelines of the whole of the year. You've got Christmas there, you've got January sales, Easter, summer, this sort of thing. But all the major retailing events are mapped out in the shops. And this is really, really essential if you're running an effective shop. You need to know what's coming up ahead. You need to know what to expect. I can see Isha over there. She's nodding her head. Yeah. Nice. Have you got a timeline in your shop? <laughs> so we need to anticipate the future and what might happen. Um, if you want to go on a particular retreat uh, you, or a holiday, you've got to plan it. You've got to plan it in terms time-wise, workload-wise, financially, even emotionally. You've got to prepare for these things. So we need to plan to some extent. And I'm often shocked at how little people do plan their lives very often. And then something kind of hits them and they hadn't seen it happening. Particularly if it's something that happens at the same time every year. I mean, come on. Come on, what are you playing at? What are you doing? So you need to imagine the future and plan ahead to some extent, because of course we all know that our plans, our best laid plans, can be just changed by one phone call or one event. They often do. Uh, often for middle-aged people it's to do with parents, it's to do with the health of parents. It can just change everything. 
and suddenly an elder parent gets ill and you have to just change what you're doing completely. Happened to me once. I had a whole tour in India planned and my mother had a stroke the day before I flew out. I had to cancel everything. Very, very difficult. But it had to be done. And this can happen. So we have to lightly hold. We have to plan at the same time lightly holding to uh, those plans and being prepared to change them if we need to. So there's a kind of middle way there uh, of definitely planning and imagining the future at the same time not rigidly uh, holding on to that. Sorry, the middle way um, the middle way is planning. The extreme would be not planning at all, having no planning going on in your life. So I am struck by this often, how little people do plan. And they're caught out when the unanticipated happens. It happened to me once I was on a holiday in the Peak, going on a holiday in the Peak District with my partner at the time. And we had the car packed, we had the B&B booked, everything was ready to go. We thought we'll just have one more cup of coffee for the road. And we were just having a cup of coffee. We got a knock on the door. It was a policeman. He said, is this your vehicle, sir? And I thought, oh no, what's this? So you do realise your tax disc is out of date. And the whole holiday completely changed. And um, I just hadn't planned properly. We got everything done, but my tax, tax disc was out. In the end, we took the train. But that's the kind of thing that can happen, isn't it? So we need a middle way between too rigid a planning on one hand and not enough planning on the other. So habit three is really about imagining the future, having a vision for what you want to have happen, being flexible about how that can be achieved. So I just want to say something about um, Charles Babbage. He's um, known as the father of computing. He was around in the 1800s. And he invented um, this thing, which he never actually saw um, in his lifetime because he died before it was actually made. But that is the first computer. And we're talking about 1800s. Get this, he also invented the first computer printer, all in the 1800s. And it worked. Computer printer, Charles Babbage. And modern uh, computer architecture apparently is still largely the same as Babbage's architecture. It was just all done with kind of cogs and all the rest of it. He just imagined how things uh, were to be done. He could calculate very accurately logarithms, trigonometry, as well as it, it worked on the decimal system. He saw that the decimal system was going to become important in the future. It's like 200 years ago, you know. And uh, he had real vision and insight. He really imagined the future. This was actually built by the um, Science Museum in the 1990s, and they actually finally built it, and, uh, and it worked really well. But he never saw it because he died uh, before it was ever uh, really realised. Charles Babbage, the father of computing. Fascinating, isn't it? All these people were around. So we have to think about the future and imagine. It used to be um, operated by a sort of cranking handle, and you sort of turn this handle and then it sort of spewed out these um, calculations. Extraordinary. So habit four, always have a plan B. Yeah? And this applies to individuals and the workforce. This means having another option. Uh, there are times when plan A goes wrong, doesn't it? 
I'm just about to fly out to Guthialoka to do some ordinations on Monday. And I've been watching, you know, the ash cloud. The ash cloud is going to affect my flight. Looks like it's going to be all right. But I did have a plan B. I did check out the trains on Eurostar. Because you've got to have a plan B in this life. Because things go wrong sometimes. And you need to be able to respond. So, very interesting character. Um, if I can find it. Very interesting character. Called Joseph Wright of Derby. Oh yeah, here he is. Joseph Wright of Derby. Very interesting. Once again, uh, a great painter of the Industrial Revolution. And he was trained to be a portrait and landscape painter. And this was, uh, this was the tradition of the time. And he found he couldn't make any money, even though he was a good enough, a very good painter. He couldn't make enough money in the 1817 and 1800s to actually earn a decent living. Uh, and what was going on during the Industrial Revolution was industry in a big way and science. And so he thought to himself, they were, and they weren't considered fit subjects for art at that time. So his plan B was, I know what I'll do. I'll actually paint them in a way which is really interesting to the art establishment of the time. So he came up with these absolute masterpieces of kind of industry that are painted in really such traditional and fascinating sort of ways. They changed art forever, actually. Joseph Reichert, Darby. That was the like an industry one. And there's a science one here as well. They're really, really fascinating. They've got like Italian Renaissance type kind of chiaroscuro, uh, as they call it, the light and shade effect. Fascinating painter. They changed art forever. And that was his plan B. Yeah, he wasn't going to starve. And um, we all need plan B. It's something quite practical. If plan A fails, we need something else that we can do. And um, when plan A fails, sometimes we get upset, don't we, about that. But then after that, we need to move on to what else we're going to do. Uh, but actually, if you've got a plan B already there, you maybe don't even need to get upset. Because you've got another string to your bow. Some situations in life are so crucial, some aspects of work are so crucial, that even a plan C is required, I would suggest. So, have a fallback position. Have a plan B. Habit five. Remember death in the big picture. It's a useful habit at certain times to remember the fact of death, but it's not useful all the time, I don't think. The remembering the fact that one day uh, you won't exist. Uh, probably this business won't exist. Probably not, you know, we'll all be gone. And the fact of impermanence. That's quite a kind of challenging reflection to have. But sometimes it has the taste of freedom about it. Sometimes it allows us to see the insignificance of the particular task that we're currently very closely engaged with and the importance of it, to be able to see it in a much much bigger perspective. It's very useful. The Tibetan Book of the Dead tells us that life itself is a bardo, an intermediate state between birth and death. Yeah, that's what it is. And we're in that at the moment. And there are times when that's worth reflecting on. You could stand outside of what you're doing and get that bigger perspective. Uh, my father is 80 now, and I was talking to him on the phone the other day about forest fires, and he just sort of chuckled. 
all he's concerned about now is living as long as possible with the best quality health he can have. He doesn't care about forest fires uh, anymore. They're just something to laugh at. But 50 years ago, he couldn't sleep at night. Night after night, he couldn't sleep. It was so crucial to his life. And I think this is, this uh, emphasizes the value of archive photographs of the business. I think archive photographs of the business are really, really important to get this kind of perspective on something. And I do, I really do think we need a pu public, visible archive of Windhorse evolution of all the photographs from the past. There's a project there that really needs to happen. So, one day it will be like that for us. We'll look back on our career from the position of 50 years or something like that. And it will all just seem a bit of a laugh, really. I love looking at old Victorian photographs of people at work, you know, with their big moustaches and women with their big skirts and doing their tasks. And I look at them and I think, oh, they were just like us. We're, we're just like them. Just the same. They were just doing their jobs when they were human beings, doing the things that human beings do. But they're all dead now. And that work doesn't exist. And um, they had hopes, they had dreams, they had fears, they had joys, just like we did. Uh, but they're gone now. So it's worth remembering that sometimes, sometimes. Habit six. Always be upskilling. This means never resting on your current skills at work. Yeah, not just work, but life as well, actually. One of the most valuable assets of a team-based right livelihood is the workforce. And the most valuable asset of the workforce is its skills, and individual skills. Yeah, skills are everything in employment, as we all know. And in terms of dealing with change, it makes all, it can make all the difference between triumph and disaster. The more you add to your skills, the more useful you are to the company. Yeah? And also you'll probably have a more satisfying uh, experience of work if your skills are good. So, uh, if you're a, for instance, you're a buyer of commodities within the business, say you're buying stock, uh, you're buying vehicles, you're buying foodstuffs, if you've got negotiating skills, good negotiating skills, well you'll get better deals. And that means the business will save money. So that's a sort of very obvious example of that. Um, if you didn't have good negotiating skills, you probably wouldn't be doing the job, actually. Uh, but that's another story. So look for learning and development opportunities within the business. Yeah, we've got a learning and development officer. Well, do a skills inventory with him. Yeah. Uh, we've got the spiral reviews coming up soon. And don't sort of think, oh no, spiral reviews. I don't really want to do that. Good! Spiral reviews, fantastic! It's an opportunity for me to upskill, to improve my skills, get clear what they are, and where can I move forward? Yes? And of course, all this stuff is completely free. It's, com it's not going to cost you anything. Uh, just maybe your ego, perhaps. So always be upskilling. Don't just rest on your laurels, rest on the skills that you currently possess in the employment field. They could gradually become outdated and you beca could beca easily become an irrelevant dinosaur. My poor old dad, um, he retired 15 years ago and uh, he's always saying things to me like, well, what is this internet thing? 
What's this internet? And this week he said to me, what, what, what is twitting? What is twitting? What is a twit? And he's got no idea what twitting is. He's just not up to date with it. He doesn't need to be anymore. It's up to him, you know. He's a, incidentally, my brother is a head forester. He's telling me they've got fire watching totally sorted out these days. He looks after very big areas of forest. Fire watching is really, really different these days from the days of that. They, they use voluntary bird watchers to do fire, fire watching. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Habit seven. Habit seven. This is the last one. Practice the four right efforts. And these are quite a practical way of working with your mind at work, particularly around the area of change. I'm not going to say very much about them. It's one for the discussion group for you. So the four right efforts are preventing, eradicating, developing and maintaining. So it's about working, putting effort into the mental state that you're currently in. Preventing the arising of unskillful mental states, sort of heading that off, stopping yourself from getting angry or depressed. Eradicating unskillful mental states which already have arisen. You're in a bad mood, you've got very, very angry or upset. So coming to terms with that, dealing with it, changing it. And then developing unarisen, skillful mental states. That means consciously saying, I, I need to be in a good state. This morning I was giving a talk. All right, I need to be kind of relaxed and happy. It's been prepared for that. It's been a good state. Meditate this morning. So I, I was. I was in a good state. It wouldn't be any good for me to give a talk in bad state. Developing. And then finally maintaining. If you're in a good state, you need to keep it there. Yeah, you need to maintain that. I was saying that to Vidya Vadra about the um, WESAC that we just did. You know, I thought it was the best WESAC we've ever had at work. He said, you, you've got to maintain that now. You've got to keep that sort of level, haven't you? And um, that's what we have to do with our mental states as well. We have to keep them at a certain level. Preventing, eradicating, developing and maintaining. Putting the right kind of effort in under the right circumstances. And it's particularly useful with issues of change. So if you practice the four right efforts regularly, you develop a kind of confidence uh, that you can deal with whatever comes along in your working life. Yeah? And um, it's a little bit like being at the top of your game in the work you do. Something like maybe Bissadur or Presbandu, somebody who's very good at what they're doing. You, you know that you've got confidence, you can deal with whatever conditions come up in your work. It's a bit like that with Full Right Efforts. They bring about that kind of confidence of working with change. And there's a Buddha that's associated with this, which is uh, Akshobhya. He's one of the Buddhas, the Buddha of the Eastern Quarter. And he's associated with imperturbability, said to be unshakable and imperturbable, Akshobhya. Yeah, he's also associated with elephants. And they're a really interesting animal. They're not, ele- they're not animals. We can't push elephants around very easily. Yeah? They don't get easily shaken and upset. So in a way you could say Akshobhya was the Buddha that represented uh, effective dealing with change at work. So, to conclude, this morning I've talked about many things around dealing with change in the team-based right livelihood. I've talked about sudden and dramatic change. I've talked about Ned Ludd and the Luddites. Gradual and constant change. I've talked about the Buddhist teaching of impermanence 
and the reactive and creative spirals and modes of conditionality. Yeah. I've asked how can we respond creatively to change at work. I've made in the age of anxiety and I've made seven suggestions which are all on the notes which you can take with you. So I'd like to finish with a little poem. And um, according to Roger McGough of Poetry Please on Radio 4, it's Britain's favourite poem. Britain's favourite poem. And um, I've done something very naughty, something that's probably never been done ever in the history of our movement. And I'm not going to offer any apologies uh, for this naughtiness. And I hope that you can deal with the change. I've changed the last line. It doesn't rhyme. The last, and it won't, it means it won't rhyme now. Uh, but it was written in the kind of Victorian imperial period and it's not quite appropriate the last line to how things are these days. So I've changed something. But this poem I think really does kind of point to the kind of qualities that we need, uh, to work. Uh, effectively the change between the child If by Rudyard Kipling. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting or being lied about don't deal in lies or being hated don't give way to hating yet don't look too good, nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat these two impostors just the same, if you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves and make a trap for fools, or watch the things you give your life to broken, and stoop and build them up with worn-out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says hold on if you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings, nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with sixty seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it, and, which is more, you'll be a true individual, my friend. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 